Corinthians chapter 11. <clears throat> Sue and I had an encouraging time at the First Baptist Church of Colville last week. It's up north of Spokane, if you don't know where that is. And uh, it's almost, uh, almost as far north as we are on the other side of the state. And uh, they've got uh, a real thriving church. And there were several missionary couples there. We were just uh, one of them there for the weekend. And uh, they had several ways that they honored all of their missionary couples. And one of them that I particularly liked was we got to go first in the potluck line. <laughs> I, can't remember, I can't remember the last time I was first in that line. And boy, they had a spread up there too. And of course, then you're you know loading up your plate and you're thinking, what are those people thinking about me? And <laughs> save some of that food for us. I had to remember my childhood training, FHB, family hold back. When you have company, it's FHB, you know. So uh, you let the guests get a good plateful, and you have what's left over, you know. And. Uh, Oh, well, it was, uh, it was an embarrassment of riches. As we come uh, to the book of 1 Corinthians, we're going to understand that the First Baptist Church of Corinth had some real problems in their church dinners. And you might be thinking, what in the, why in the world would God instruct them about their church dinner? That's a crazy topic for the Bible. Well, it actually isn't, and you'll understand how significant it is as we work our way through this passage. 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 17. Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. Wow, that's a terrible reputation for a church to have. When you come together for church, the result in people's lives is negative, not positive. Verse 18, for first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. We need to understand the setting as we uh, approach this passage of Scripture. Uh, we see the word supper used uh, a few times here. And to really understand this, we've got to go back to the Lord's instigation of the Lord's Supper. And we read a little bit about that before we had the Lord's Supper. And I want to go back to it and just emphasize a few more things. Then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. And they sent Peter and John saying, go prepare the Passover for us. See, when the Lord's Supper was instituted, it was on the tail end of the Passover. So we've got to grasp the Passover a little bit and, and how it came to, into the church life in the early church. When the hour had come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. Then he said to them, with fervent desire, I've desired to eat this Passover with you 
before I suffer, for I say to you, I will no longer eat of it till it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and said, Take and divide among yourselves, for I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, said, This is my body which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me. Likewise, he took the cup after supper. I want you to notice something here, if you didn't. He talks about a cup here, and then we come to the bread of the Lord's Supper, then we come to the cup after, after the Passover, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. The Passover is significant here, and, and because it was a feast, uh, a, a, the Passover feast was a ritual, and by ritual, what we mean is something that you, they were to do on a regular basis. I understand the word ritual gets used in some churches to mean something that maybe gets you saved or gets you some grace with God. That's not the way I'm using the word. Uh, I call this a ritual sometimes, and some I, I've had some dear old saints in the past say, this is not a ritual, this is an ordinance. Well, it's a ritual because we do it every month. Okay, but it, theologically, no, it's not something that's going to get us saved. So the, the Passover was a ritual which God commanded of his people in the process of delivering them from slavery in Egypt. So we've got to go back and get a little bit of history from the Old Testament in case you're not familiar. But the people of God were enslaved in Egypt, and God wanted to deliver them out of Egypt. And so he did a series of miracles that we call the Ten Plagues, the last of which was the death of the firstborn of man and beast. And God said, all of the firstborn are going to die except for my people who will believe me and do what I say. And what he said was, on a certain night, you uh, sacrifice a lamb, you prepare it, and you take the blood of the lamb and dab it on the doorpost and on the lintel, and then you go inside the door cook the lamb, eat the lamb with a certain prescribed meal, and while you are, get this now, under the blood, the death angel will come through Egypt and will kill the firstborn of man and beast, but everyone who is under the blood will be passed over, literally. In other words, the death angel will come by and say, they're under the blood, they're under the blood, they're under the blood, they're not so on and so on and so on all through Egypt. The Passover was a tremendous picture of salvation. It shouldn't be too hard the way I've just explained it for you to understand that Jesus died on the cross and there's a constant reference to the blood of Christ that cleanses our sins. When you believe in Christ as your Savior, you are under the blood. You are protected by the blood of Christ so that the judgment of God will never come to you. God will pass over you in judgment, and, and so that is our privilege. We celebrate being under the blood of Christ when we drink this cup. We celebrate his, his, uh, his uh, suffering for us when we eat the bread. So when Jesus is... is uh, is celebrating the Passover as every observant Jewish person would do in that era. 
as he was doing that, he came to the end of the Passover meal and there was a prescribed ritual, eat this and drink this and this whole pattern of things. When he came to the end, he said, now I've got something new for you. Got something new for you. Uh, there is gonna be bread here that's gonna represent my suffering for you and, bl- and juice that represents my blood. He didn't say wine, by the way. He said cup, which is really interesting. The, the, the clear reference to that. And so um, that's the beginning of the Lord's Supper. Now, look back with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16. He was talking about this issue, we've already been over this as we've worked our way through the book, he was talking about the issue of meat sacrifice to idols and all of the the connections to that. And in verse 16, he talks about the cup, the cup in the Lord's Supper, the cup which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? Those of you that have always heard this ritual referred to as communion, it's based in that verse. The word communion there literally is the word fellowship. It's translated fellowship most of the time in the New Testament. The emphasis is this. When I partake of the bread and the cup, I connect with Christ, not in salvation, but I connect with Christ in worship. And I, um, I commune with him, I fellowship with him. Now, if we look at uh, chapter uh, 11, verse 20, the text that we already read, it says, when you come together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. We often refer to this as the Lord's Supper. Either one of those terms is appropriate, but I wanted you to see where those terms come from. Jesus simply referred to it as the cup and the bread, as Paul does later in chapter 11. Now, let's fast forward from the Passover and Christ's observance of the Passover and the Lord's Supper. Let's fast forward to the early church practice. In Acts chapter 2, we read about the beginning of the church. The first time that the gospel is preached, Christ has gone back to heaven, and people have believed in Christ and formed into a church. And what did they do? When they formed into a church, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine or teaching, the content, just like we're having right now, and fellowship, the body of Christ helping one another, and in the breaking of bread and prayers. And in verse 46, we read this, so continuing daily with one accord in the temple, they'd come to the temple and have part of their worship, and then they would break bread from house to house, They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. The common practice of the early church was to have a dinner, not the full Passover, not the exact Jewish ritual of the Passover, but to come together and eat in in sort of a remembering of Jesus eating with the apostles. And at the end of their eating, then they would have the Lord's Supper. And in the early church, we have to remember uh, that the First Baptist Church of Jerusalem didn't have a church building. Okay, and so they were in house to house. They ate here and ate there. And, and some commentators have suggested that every time they ate together, which could have been even every day, they had the Lord's Supper every time. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, some churches have the Lord's Supper every week. We have it once a month. Christ didn't say 
But the idea is that the meal was connected with the Lord's Supper. Later in the New Testament, all the way down to the book of Jude, we read this, talking about false teachers. They are spots in your love feasts. While they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. What's a love feast? The love feast was this meal before the Lord's Supper. And apparently it was a common enough practice that it's referred to. Now it's never commanded. You say, why don't we have dinner before the Lord's Supper? Uh, you know, I, it, we have it after the Lord's Supper. would be fine for us to eat together every week, uh, take a little extra work and so on. But you're gonna see in a minute why we don't. <laughs> and it's because there was a problem in Corinth. There was a problem. They had this feast. We, if we pull all this together, we realize that the early church looked at the Lord's example and instruction and decided that the godly thing to do was to have dinner and then the Lord's Supper together um, at least every week, if not every time they gathered. At the conclusion of the dinner, they would have the bread and the cup as an act of worship to remember Jesus. Now, you might ask the question, well, what could go wrong with that? Well, what went wrong with that is what we've read about in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 through 22. Um, Verse 18 uh, or excuse me, uh, yeah, verse 18. When, we come, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. When you come together, there are divisions. I want to talk about the sin that was going on here, and the first sin is what I've chosen to call the visible sin, and it's the sin of selfishness. And that sin of selfishness is in verse 21. For in eating... Each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. Now, when I was in Greece uh, with uh, Helen Steele, Jim and I were there, and uh, they had church dinner, as they do every week after church, and they had wine on the table at dinner, and I think... They, I think the leaders of that church know that commonly um, folks like me in the United States don't drink, and so they kind of talked about it or whatever, and I said, hey, that's, you do whatever you like. These people had alcoholic wine as part of their meal, okay? And they had food, but at the end of that meal, some people were hungry and some people were drunk, Okay, so just think about a church dinner, (laughs) think all the way to the end and say, we got all the way done eating and some people were standing there hungry and some people were standing there drunk. Now do you understand the problems that were creeping up in the church at Corinth? Now, why, uh, why would some people be hungry? We'll see that in just a minute. But what comes to mind as I think about this selfishness that was going on there, is the command of the Lord when he said, you shall love your neighbors as yourself. Um, part of this I didn't mean to necessarily get on the screen, but that's what I'm going to say to you. I have to be real honest and tell you that I really enjoyed going first in the potluck line. 
It's awesome. I think if we were all really honest, we would say we love to go first. Here's what I'm trying to say. Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. There's been a terrible corruption of that instruction in Christianity in which people have said, that's right, you have to love yourself before you love your neighbor. You're not able to love your neighbor unless you love yourself. Okay, well, let's just say that's the right definition. So what that means is, in the church potluck, if I really love, if I'm really going to be able to love you, I'm going to go first in line. I will love you far better if I take care of myself and go first in line than if I say, no, you go first. You're going, wait a minute, that's messed up. Yeah, that's messed up. What Jesus meant was exactly what he said. Do you want to really love people? Then give your neighbor the place you usually give yourself. You love to be first, let your neighbor go first. Oh, there's a sacrifice there, isn't there? Yeah, there's a sacrifice there. Philippians 2 talks about it. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Let nothing be done through selfish motivation or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each one value, esteem others better than himself. It doesn't, it, you know, God never tells you to think poorly of yourself. He never looks at you and say, you like yourself too much in your basic opinion, and so just think of yourself as a piece of trash. He doesn't say that. He says, no, look at other people and value them. Look at other people and love them and care for them. Let each of you look out not only for your own interest, but also for the interest of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it something to be clung to, like a thief clings to, to his booty, to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Of all the people in the universe, who deserves the most esteem? Jesus, the only perfect person ever. And what did he do? He put us first. And he put himself second. And that's our pattern. That is what we're supposed to be doing. But the Corinthians came to dinner and some people went away hungry, which clearly indicates that some people were not caring for others. Which brings us to the subtle sin. Look at verse 18 and 19. First of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there's divisions among you, and in part I believe it. Then look at verse 22. Do you not have houses to eat in, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? You shame those who have nothing. The subtle sin here is prejudice. The word division, when there are divisions among you, uh, verse 18, means to tear, to tear something. It clearly implies that whatever he's talking about was once whole, and it's been torn by the actions of the people involved. 
the, the, the thing we have to understand here is God intends for the body of Christ to live in oneness. We are to endeavor to keep. He doesn't say we are endeavored to make the unity of the Spirit. We're in to endeavor to keep the unity that the Holy Spirit produces in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who's above all and through all and in you all. Do you see a couple of words emphasized there? See, God created the body of Christ in oneness. There is no division in the body of Christ. The division comes in when we tear it. And the division that appears to have been here was the, particularly the division between rich and poor. In 1 Corinthians, they were dividing up according to their preference for a certain Bible teacher. Here, they seem to be dividing up according to economics or social standing. Obviously, the two big classes of people you'd have in the church of Corinth is slaves and owners. And I imagine if then was like today, the slaves and the owners didn't mix. You got the slave bunch and you got the owner bunch. And they came to dinner, and who do you, thought, who do you think brought the big picnic basket? The owners, and who do you think made it for them? That's double unfair, isn't it? Listen to what James said. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality or prejudice. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine clothing, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy rags, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes, and you say to him, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Over at Nooksack, when we built the church building, it was going to be situated like this with seating here and seating there, and we were trying to decide what kind of seats we would have and the cost for all of that, and and at that time, you know, 30 years ago, we were going to put pews in. And, and we were, you know, if we would put chairs up in the balcony, we could save, you know, so many thousand dollars over putting pews up there. And, and uh, so we were having this discussion in a business meeting about, you know, chairs or pews up in the balcony. And a, and a, and a, and a kind of lame old Dutchman stood up, who, who spoke with kind of a broken accent a little bit. He was first generation from Holland. And he remembered the churches in Holland, and, it, and, and over there you had to buy a subscription for your chair. The way they supported the, the church was, if you wanted a chair, you, you wrote the check at the beginning of the year, and then that is literally your chair for the year. <laughs> and the poor people, just like this text says, they stood over there or sat by the footstool. In the back of the, the big Newkirk church in, in Holland, which is now a museum, not even a church, that's a sad thing, there was a special ornate uh, carved wooden box seating for the mayor. Okay, And the poor people stood or sat on the floor, do whatever, we don't care. And so this old Dutchman, he, he reflected on that, and we're having this discussion, 
And he stood up and said, we will not have any second-class seats in this church. Discussion's over. Boom. We all went, okay. Wow. We cannot have any second-class seats in our church, literally or figuratively, and they did at Corinth. You know, I've, I've only ever seen something like this uh, once, kind of, in a church. As a, as, a, as a young child, I can remember a family in a church bringing their own food and eating their own food and not sharing at the potluck. And I don't, I, I don't think it was a dietary reason back then. Nobody had discovered gluten-free. <laughs> and as I, recall, it has, as I recall, it had something to do with roast beef, you know. So um, it is hard not to be prejudiced. We just got to be honest about that. We're all prejudiced about something, someone, some kind. Historically in our country, people of color. Historically, blacks. Hispanics for some. In parts of our country today, a heavy prejudice against Asians. 35 years ago when I was over at Nooksack, there was a significant anti-Canadian prejudice. It was always kind of joking, like, oh, what do the cheeseheads do now, you know? And that's what, that's what they used to call them, cheeseheads. And I saw a car driving down the street one time. It was bashed in on one side and spray-painted on it, hit by a cheesehead. You know, the arch at the border says children of a common mother. And it's true. We both came from the same country, predominantly, historically. Today, who are we prejudiced against? People of Arab ethnicity? People of color that, that look in, in that ethnic group? Muslims, perhaps? <sighs> See, in the church of Corinth, it was an economic thing. Maybe for us it's not an economic thing. Maybe it's something else. Who knows? We're all prejudiced. We all struggle with it in some way. And the challenge for us is to aspire to be like God. Is God prejudiced? I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. In other words, yeah, will there be a reckoning someday of the, of the ungodly people, not, not ethnic groups, but of the ungodly? Yeah, there'll be a reckoning someday. But right now, God loves everybody Equally in the pouring out of, of our common grace blessings, and we need to imitate that. The visible sin, selfishness, the subtle sin, prejudice, the ignorant sin. The ignorant sin is a disgrace to the body of Christ. Look at verse 22. Do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? When Paul accuses them of despising the church of God, he was not talking about the building. Whenever we hear the word church, we immediately think of the building, and that is the wrong reference point. The church is always the people. 
This is just our, we should call it the church building, not the church. And the Apostle Paul said, if you are selfish and prejudiced, the resulting sin is you are disgracing the body of Christ. The word church literally means an assembly or a congregation. Uh, It was used in secular Greek as well as in the Bible. It's not a special Bible word. It means a a group of people that are gathered. We talk about two elements of, of uh, of the church. We talk about the universal church, which is all Christians of all time, and then the local church. That's us right here. And so they were... They were, devi- they were despising the body of Christ by their divisiveness and prejudice. And again, we read from chapter one, now I say that each of you, when you say, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter, I'm of Christ, is Christ divided? The very act of dividing up and not, not connecting together hurts the body of Christ. Was Paul crucified for you? When you come together, he says, it's not to eat then the Lord's Supper. Look at verse 20. This is the result. And this is, this is the big moral of the story that we're coming to. He said these people, these people had a big feast and then at the end of that feast they had the Lord's Supper and Paul says, listen folks, you might be eating bread and drinking juice but you are not having the Lord's Supper. What he does is make a difference between the physical act and the spiritual act. Just because we eat the bread and drink the juice does not mean we have worshipped the Lord. John Phillips put it this way in his commentary, commentary. At the Lord's Supper, rich and poor alike partake together of his bounty. What they were doing, the Corinthians, was such a mockery of the Lord's Supper as to negate the idea behind the supper altogether. Let me put it real plainly. Their behavior before the Lord's Supper ruined the worship that they gave at the Lord's Supper. John MacArthur put it this way. They could not properly say that it was devoted to the Lord. They had the ceremony but not the reality. They had the form, but not the substance. Some might be tempted to say, well, we don't have the love feast before the Lord's Supper, so this is of no significance to us. Nothing could be further from the truth. The first and foremost question we must ask is this. Are we celebrating the Lord's Supper in a way that shows we love the body of Christ. In that vein, Jesus said these words about how we come to worship. If you bring your gift to the altar, ready to give an offering, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar, go your way, be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. There's a right way and a wrong way to worship the Lord. God, ha- God is never about just the physical aspect, the, the, the physical ritual. He's always about the heart and about us being right with him and right with the body of Christ as we come to worship him. 
when Sue and I got on the plane last week in Spokane to come home, the pilot said, we expect some turbulence, so please stay in your seat with your seatbelt fastened. That was before we even left the ground. That's really discouraging. (laughs) And it didn't happen until we were descending into Seattle. And the plane was doing that thing. You know, if you've ever flown it, you know. When a big plane does that, it's especially scary. But I was sitting so that I could see the flight attendant. And she was sitting in that backwards-facing seat right there. And she was not enjoying the ride. You make, and when the when the plane when the when the wheels touched down, I saw her go. <laughs> Lady, you are in the wrong profession. <laughs> you know, Christians. Sometimes that's what we do at church. The ride gets bumpy, so we just kind of hang on and grit our teeth and hold our breath and wait for it to be over. But God wants us to change our attitudes and our actions to live in genuine love for people and genuine worship for him. Heavenly Father, oh, hmm. we all have to work on really loving one another more and more because it it is a consistent challenge. I pray that you would help us to do that. May this church be a place where there are no second-class seats. May we love one another and encourage one another. And when we come to this Lord's Supper, may we have a heart truly for the body of Christ and the person of Christ so that you, Jesus, will be honored by our worship. As we pray that you have been today, I pray in your name, amen.